The last few months, we've been working our way through the Psalms. And every time we've been trying to see God's character in those Psalms. For example, we looked at Psalm 1 and saw that God was judge. Or, or we looked at Psalm 29 and saw his glory. Or, or, or maybe last week we looked at Psalm 19 and saw the power of his word. And this week we want to look at Psalm 147 and examine the grace of God. Now I'm going to be real honest with you. Some of these other Psalms, they've just leapt off the page of these characteristics of God. But Psalm 147, we got to do a little work there. We're going to have to dig a little bit because I don't think we're going to see the grace of God just right off the bat. So if you would join me, we're going to read the entire Psalm this morning together. And then we'll begin to do the hard work of seeing the context and then seeing where God's grace really shines. Let's start reading in verse one. He says this, hallelujah, how good it is to sing to our God for praise is pleasant and lovely. The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. He heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord helps the afflicted, but brings the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Play the lyre to our God, who covers the sky with clouds, prepares rain for the earth, and causes grass to grow on the hills. He provides the animals with their food and the young ravens what they cry for. He is not impressed by the strength of a horse. He does not value the power of a man. The Lord values those who fear him, those who put their hope in his faithful love. Exalt the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your children within you. He endows your territory with prosperity. He satisfies you with the finest wheat. He sends his command throughout the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He throws his hailstones like crumbs. Who can withstand his cold? He sends his word and melts them. He unleashes his winds and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel. He has not done this for any nation. They do not know his judgments. Hallelujah. I told you it might be a little difficult to see God's grace on this, right? So let's go back to verses one and two and let's see if we can get some context. When was this written? Who was it written to? And maybe that'll start helping us unfold the puzzle and start seeing God's grace. Verse one again, hallelujah, how good it is to sing to our God for his praise is pleasant and lovely. And then verse two, it says, the Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. There's a clue that Jerusalem need to be rebuilt and that the people were in exile. And then skip down there to verse 13. We get one more. It says, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. Now, we don't know who wrote this psalmist. We don't have any inscription at the beginning, but these little bit of clues tell us that there was a time when Jerusalem was destroyed. There was a time when it needed to be rebuilt. There was a time when the people of Israel were scattered and they needed to be brought back, that they were in exile. 
And so because of that, that tells us that there was a specific time when this psalm was written. Now, if you're not real familiar with the timeline of the Bible, let me give you a very crude one real quick. You ready? This is how it works. There was Moses at Mount Sinai given the law and he was going to bring it down to the people and God wanted them to obey the law, the Ten Commandments and this moral code that God gave them as a covenant and said, if you obey it, things will go well. If you don't obey it, it won't go well. Matter of fact, I'm going to scatter you abroad. And most of the Old Testament is a testimony to the fact that the nation of Israel did not obey God. They did not keep his commands. They were unfaithful. They worshiped other gods. They, they were mean to each other. They did not do the things God wanted them to do. And sure enough, Babylon and Assyria came in and wiped out Jerusalem. They tore down the, the gates and the walls. They destroyed the temple and yanked out all of the, the sacrificial furniture and the, uh, the gold out of the temple. And then they took the people and they brought them back to Babylon. And that's what we call the exile, which was mentioned in verse two here. While they were there, it wasn't a good situation. That's where we get stories like Daniel in the lion's den because Nebuchadnezzar was the king or, or maybe we remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar built this big gold statue and said, everyone's gonna worship me. And, Nebu and, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, not us, right? That may have been one of your favorite stories from last week. That's one that when one of my kids shared as their favorite. And so those are the things that happened while they were in Babylon. And it was, it was a time of oppression. It was time of, of sadness. Matter of fact, just a, a few Psalms prior to Psalm 147 and Psalm 137, listen to these words. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion it says in verse two, there we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees. It says it was such a bad time. It was such a sad time. We would look back and remember, oh Zion, how good were the, the, those days when we could worship God. But now we're here in this pagan land with these pagan gods, with this ego, this maniac of a king, Nebuchadnezzar, and we can't even can't even worship the way we want to. Matter of fact, the Psalm goes on in 137 to say our, our tongue is stuck to the roof of our mouths. It's just bad here. Or, or maybe you'll remember Nehemiah, which is written after the exile because the people are coming in and they're going to rebuild the wall or, or Ezra when they're, they're going to rebuild the temple. Listen to these words in Nehemiah chapter one, verse three. He said, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. This is bad time for them. And then it says, Jerusalem's walls have been broken down. Its gates have been burned down. If you know anything about Israel, the last word you want associated with it is disgrace. Let me take it just a little bit further, just so you know the even more of the context. Remember that guy, Nebuchadnezzar, who built that big statue and wanted everybody to worship him? He also, during the time of the exile, built what is called the Ishtar Gate. 
It's actually, at one point, was one of the seven wonders of the world. I've got a picture of it here for you. It was 50 feet tall and 100 feet wide. It took 30 years to excavate this, this thing. And, and then it was re-put back together, if you will, in a museum in Berlin. And this is just the front of it. It was actually multi-tiered. If you could find it on Google, you'll see how thick it actually was. And not only that, but Nebuchadnezzar built this because he wanted this to be the front door to Babylon. He wanted everybody to come through this gate and recognize Babylon is awesome. Babylon is, is full of splendor and glory. And not only that, they wanted him to think, look at Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar and how great he is. What a testimony to his kingship. He did several things like the hanging gardens of Babylon and, and this. And you'll notice it was covered with these glazed tiles. And on those glazed tiles, there would have um, these animals. You might have an animal like a lion. A lion was the, uh, the animal of the god Ishtar. And that Ishtar god of Babylon was for fertility or, or there might be the, the, a dragon. And on the dragon, you would see that it was, it was for Marduk, the, the god of the pantheon of gods of Babylon. And then there was a bull and the bull was associated with the god Adad, who was the storm god, the god of rain, the god of, of, of snow and sleet. And so you would have this massive gate and even to make matters worse, not only did he just build this gate, he actually built a processional way that was a quarter of a mile long. Here's a model of it. And so not only would they come through the gate, but once you came in, you would see these lions and these dragons and these bulls as you walk through a quarter of a mile to get to the temple of Marduk and Ishtar and Adad. This is what the Jewish people were seeing on a regular basis while they were in Babylon. Every year around New Year, the king Nebuchadnezzar would have this massive party that would last weeks and they would parade people through this processional way, making much of Marduk, making much of Adad, making much of Ishtar, making much of himself, making much of Babylon. And so that's what they're seeing. And they had to endure this year in and year out. And finally, after 70 years, they get to go home home. And now I want you to read verses one and two one more time. You ready? Hallelujah. How good it is to sing to our God for praise is pleasant and lovely. You hear it? The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. They said, finally, we're home and we don't have to sing anymore to these, these false gods. We can sing to Yahweh how good it is. He says it again later, sing to him, exalt him, praise his name. You might be wondering, but, but Russell, where's the grace in that? Here's the grace, you ready? Think about it just for a moment that this nation of Israel who had shaken their fist in the face of Yahweh saying, we'll worship these other gods. We'll worship Baal. We'll, we'll worship Asherah. They, they would forsake the 10 commandments. They would persecute the prophets. They would beg for kings. They would dishonor God and his law and they would dishonor his temple and God sent them out. But here's his grace. 
he brought them back home. He restores Jerusalem. He's gonna rebuild the walls. He's gonna rebuild the gates. He's gonna say, I haven't forgotten about you. Even though you were unfaithful, even though you weren't loyal, even though you didn't follow my command, I'm gonna bring you home. Isn't that amazing? That God would do that. If I were God, I would have left them in Babylon and say, you want those false gods? You got them. If you wanna worship those other, those other nations, then you got it. God said, no, I'm going to bring you home. It's gracious, isn't it? He gives you a second chance. I just wonder where you're sitting this morning. If you could think, man, how gracious has God been to me when I have willfully sinned, when I have willfully walked away from him and his word, when I have willfully decided to do some things counter to what God would have me to do, and yet he has welcomed you home. Does this sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells when that son looks at his dad and says, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance? And the dad gives it to him. And the kid goes out and squanders it on all kind of wild living. And then he doesn't have a penny to his name. And he finds himself in the pig pen eating the slop. And he says, I'm gonna go back home and I'll beg my dad to be a servant. And when his dad sees him from a long way off, his dad runs to him and embraces him and says, I'm gonna throw a party because you were lost, but now you're found. You're, you're dead, but now you're alive. That's grace. And that's the grace of God saying, I'm gonna welcome you back, Israel. We're gonna rebuild this city. We're gonna rebuild this temple. And we're gonna rebuild this nation. It's grace. As we keep reading, he also says in verse three, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. These people were wounded by God. They were wounded by their sin. They were wounded by the fact that they weren't loyal. They were wounded. God says, I'm gonna bring you home. I'm gonna heal you. He goes on and it, he says in verse five, our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord helps the afflicted and brings the wicked to the ground. This, this idea that he is, he's gonna help the, them in their affliction. Again, grace. And then he turns the table a little bit. In verse seven, he says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, play the lyre to our God who covers the sky with clouds, prepares rain for the earth and causes grass to grow on the hills. He provides the animals with their food and the young ravens what they cry for. This is what we call common grace. This is God's common grace to every person on the planet as they now get to experience God's providential reign, his, his giving to us the, the things that we need, taking care of the animals, the grass to grow, the seasons, the water cycle. This is his common grace to us. And they are now attributing it to the person it should be attributed to. This isn't the work of Adad. This isn't the work of Marduk. This is the work of Yahweh. Matter of fact, earlier it says that God is the one who names the stars and counts the stars. That's not the work of Marduk. That's the work of Yahweh. This is his common grace to give us those things. He goes on 
He says this in verse 13, for he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your children within you. Remember Ishtar being the God of fertility with that lion she would parade around on? Listen, I think the psalmist is saying, we're home. We can attribute children to the, to the one who gives life and that's Yahweh, not Ishtar. He then says this in verse 16, God's flexing his muscles here. He spreads snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He throws his hailstones like crumbs. Who can withstand his cold? This common grace of God. This isn't Adad. This is Yahweh who does this. He sends his word and melts them. He unleashes his winds and the waters flow. And then look at verse 19. This one's tricky. Because when you read it up first, it almost sounds like the psalmist is starting to get some wind and think, yeah, that's right. We're Israel. We should be proud. We should, we should show that we're better than everyone else. Look at it. He says, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel. He has not done this for any other nation. They do not know his judgments. It's not been made known to him, the text says. And if you're not careful, you might think that there's a little bit of an ego starting to well up within this, this nation of Israel who's coming back and they're getting their walls rebuilt and their temple rebuilt. But I don't think that's what the psalmist has in mind at all. I think he has in mind Deuteronomy 7. Listen to these words. He says this. The Lord was devoted to you, Israel, and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. He goes, I didn't choose you because you were great and powerful. You got some big gate or some awesome walls or, or a cool king. No, no, no. I didn't choose you for that. That's not what I chose you for. Verse eight, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Like this is the second time God has delivered them. Why? Verse nine, know that Yahweh, your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant, loyalty for a thousand generations. Gracious, do you see it? I think the psalmist in verses 19 and 20 is saying, God has been gracious to us. We have this gracious privilege of knowing God's word, of knowing his statutes. He chose us not because we were something great, not because we were anything to look at, because he loved us. God is gracious in bringing him back from exile. He is gracious in his common display of grace to the world. And he is gracious to declare his judgments and statutes to a people. Can I show you one more place? One more place that God is gracious in Psalm 147. Go all the way back up there to verse three again. It says, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. If you know your Bible, you've probably heard those phrases before. You see, there was another prophet who also wrote after the exile. And his name was Isaiah. He, he wrote in Isaiah 61. There's a lot of other places I could read in Isaiah, starting in chapter 40 all the way through, but this one seems to be very just particular to what we just read. Listen to these words in Isaiah 61. 
The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal or to bind up the brokenhearted. There it is. I think the psalmist is quoting Isaiah to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. There it is, that God is binding them up. He is gonna heal. He is gonna bind up the wounded and the brokenhearted. Now, one more, are you ready? If you know your Bible, you know that in Luke chapter four, a guy named Jesus strolls into the synagogue and it's time to read. And he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he gets to Isaiah 61 and he reads it. He reads these words of healing the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, comforting those who mourn. He reads those very words. And then Jesus says this after he rolls the scroll back up. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. In other words, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that's going to bring ultimate fulfillment, ultimate comfort, ultimate binding of the brokenheartedness. I'm going to do that. That's what's going to happen. And so today, as I think about grace, I think Psalm 147 looks back to 2,500 years ago when the nation of Israel was graciously brought back out of the exile and captivity and brought back home. I think it points to the common grace of God and all of the cycles and all of his provision. And I think it points to that grace of God that allowed Israel to be a beacon to the nations because they had God's covenant and law and word. But I also think Psalm 147 points forward to the greatest display of grace in that Jesus Christ was gonna come and through his perfect life, through his death on the cross, dying for our sins, dying for our wounds, dying for our transgressions. And then three days later, coming back to life, offering us an opportunity to have relationship with God, offering us an opportunity to have eternal life because of this gracious love of God. That's grace. And so here in a moment, when this video's done and the, the service is complete, I want you to do a couple of things. I want you to take a couple of laps around the table or a couple of laps around the room. And I want you guys to talk about a couple of things. And the first one is this. I want you to talk about how has God been gracious in your life? How's he been gracious to you? For you, maybe that's to retell the story of when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and embrace the greatest gift of all, the greatest grace of all. And that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Maybe for some of you, you would say, man, God has been really gracious to me over the last few months. That's what I want you to do first. Go around the room and do that. And then the second one is this. I want you to talk about how you can be gracious to others. I think about this character of God that, that he is showing us his grace, not just so that we'll embrace it, but that we'll also show it. I don't know about you, but man, as I just look out into our world right now and I listen to the chatter, I hear a lot of people that aren't very gracious. 
not gracious politically, not gracious racially, not gracious over this whole virus, not gracious to our school district, to our government, just not gracious to people who differ from us. It just might be nice to think about how should I show this grace? And we think about our response, that, that might be one of them. Another one might be this. Scott Schufert's been going to all of our locations as we've met live outside in parking lots or next to our buildings or in a park or, or under the tree there in Irmo. As Scott has showed up, he's preached Psalm 147. And he talks about this great gift of grace, but then he also talks about our response. And I think our response is pretty clear in the Psalm. It's to praise God. It's to make sure that we give him all the credit that he is due. All the credit for salvation. All the credit for any gifts he's given us. All the credit for the blessing in our lives. That we don't just take his gift, but we make sure we sing his praise. So maybe over this course of this week, as you think about the graciousness of God on your life, don't just say thank you. Praise God for it. Exalt his name. Because you and me, we were not worthy. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for Psalms like 147 that remind us of your grace. And even though we have to peel back the layers just a little bit to, to see how gracious you were to Israel in bringing them back and how gracious you are and, and your, your common grace to the world and how gracious you were to give them your law and your covenant and your promises. And then, Lord, for you to tuck that little jewel away in verse three for us to see that you were gracious to us ultimately by sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. Thank you for the grace that if we put our faith and trust in you, we can have relationship with you. We can be restored. So Lord, that's what I'm asking. I'm praying that we would embrace that today and make much of you. Thank you for it. We praise you for it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.